They've had to reopen now thousands of cases to go back and recompute the match statistics because they are dramatically changing. I read a newspaper report of one that went from like one in a billion to one in a hundred match probability. And this was someone who had been convicted on that one in a billion chance that this person is a match. Exactly. This was data that was being used in criminal cases regularly. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. This week, The Dark Side of Forensic DNA. That's the subtitle of the book we're discussing on the show, and I have to admit that it struck me at first as maybe a little over the top. You know, the hyped-up subtitle meant to move copies. But I really did become convinced about the problems with DNA evidence over the course of reading this book and conducting this interview. There really is a dark side. From botched collection of evidence at a crime scene to the way statistics are presented or misrepresented in front of a jury, the use of forensics has all sorts of lessons for how we talk about science and data to each other. Not to mention the fact that people's lives are at stake in these decisions. Aaron Murphy from NYU Law just wrote a fantastic book about all this, and that's coming up in a minute. But first, as always, a number that caught our eye this week. It's the significant digit. Now, usually in this moment, I go out on the street and talk to someone about the significant digit. But this is a first. This is a significant digit follow up because Andrew Flowers is here to talk more about baby names. Now, Andrew, we did a significant digit on popular baby names a number of months ago. And you told us that you were about to have a baby and that you'd picked out a name and you didn't tell us what that name was, but you promised to come back and tell us. And Andrew, you had a daughter. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited. What's uh, your sleep level like? It's uh, erratic, <laughs> I would say. It's a uh, scattershot. <laughs> so what's your what's your daughter's name? Her name is Vivian. It's a lovely name. Thank you. Thank you. She's 11 weeks old and she's blessed. And uh, tell us about that name, Vivian. My wife and I wanted to pick a name that was uh, classy and maybe a little old school, but also not too obscure and maybe, you know, uh, increasing popularity a little bit. And, and, and Vivian fit the bill. I mean, uh, we didn't use only data to, to pick this out. <laughs> I should be clear. We, we like the name. But uh, there is a statistical backing to your rationale. There is. Yeah. Uh, Vivian was a really popular name in like the 1910s, the 1920s. So according to uh, Social Security Administration data, I did look at this. I don't think my wife did, but uh, it, it was really popular then. And then it really faded out. So there are not that many Vivians born in the 60s and 70s. And just recently, though, in the last decade, it's become more popular. And uh, last year in 2014, it was um, a top 100 name for girls. It was ranked 98th, wow. actually. So it's not like Madison yet, but it's but it's getting there. It's popular. <laughs> it's it's growing in popularity. Hopefully, it doesn't become too popular. I don't want right. you know. I don't want it's, you want to uh, hit that sweet spot. I want that hipster parent kind of. <laughs> my name's not too popular. Uh, card to pull, but uh, we we love it, and uh, yeah, that's why we chose it. So you have your own personal news hook for coming in here and talking about this, which is the birth of your daughter. But there's also a bigger news hook uh, that that leads us to a baby name conversation, which is of course. Everyone knows, of course, <laughs> that uh, Kanye West and Kim Kardashian had their second child this week and named their kid 
Saint. Yes, so Saint. Now we have a North and we have a Saint, and you, of course, you're the you're somehow the baby name beat is is, is one of your beats. Yeah, it's a beat of mine. And you looked into it. Yeah, so we found uh, uh, my editor and I when we looked into this that Saint is actually a more popular name than North. So uh, Kim and Kanye are becoming a little bit more trendy, but still, it's or pretty mainstream obs- or more mainstream. They sold out and named their kids Saint. I know, <laughs> but Saint though to, to get some perspective is extremely rare. Um, uh, only 32 boys were named Saint in the United States last year in 2014, and uh, there were no girls named Saint. I mean, they had a son, so that doesn't make a difference. But it uh, it's never been more than 30, 32 names in a given year or so. I think that is probably going to increase is my hunch. I would guess that uh, as well, yeah. Andrew Flowers, thanks a lot, and congrats to you and Anna and to Vivian again. Thanks a lot. Imagine you're sitting on a jury and the prosecution stands in front of you and says, we found DNA at the crime scene that matches the defendant. In fact, there is only a one in a million chance of a match in a case like this. That sounds pretty impressive. But think about all the assumptions that go into that one statistic, into that word match. What kind of DNA was found? How complete was the sample? What's it mean to be one in a million? That sounds impressive if you're talking about, say, the residents of a town, but one in a million if your sample size is the whole world? That's a lot of matches. These trouble spots are the focus of Erin Murphy's new book, Inside the Cell, The Dark Side of Forensic DNA. She's a law professor at NYU, but before that, she was a defense lawyer. She started her career just as the use of DNA databases in a legal setting were taking off. And that's where we started our conversation. Forensic DNA, the capacity to use DNA technology to match a suspect to a crime had existed, but it was really only being used if you already had a suspect to confirm this is our person. And it wasn't until the databases started to grow that we were able to use it for this investigative purpose, which is to find a suspect when there's no other evidence. Meaning we're out of options. We don't really know how we're going to build this case, but now there's this thing that we can go search for. Exactly. And meaning as a lawyer, you were getting, as a defense lawyer, you were getting cases in which there was very little other evidence. It wasn't, you know, we have three witnesses and we have fingerprints and all this other other stuff. It was, we have really nothing except the DNA. And so now how did that DNA get there? Is the match uh, what it's cracked up to be? Those became the most important questions in the case. What was it like to be in that moment where all of a sudden you probably had to learn a whole new language and kind of learn a whole new field, right? Absolutely. I mean, we like to joke that lawyers are the people who didn't want to do math in school. That's why they became lawyers. And so I think that was true in our office. Uh, you know, I always went lucky to be in an office that is well known in the country as having uh, adequate resources to do the kind of work they need to do. And yet, even among these incredibly bright, talented lawyers, we were getting cases that were just outside of our area of expertise and training. And so we were lucky we won a grant to start this kind of group uh, within the office of lawyers who would give over their Saturdays and Sundays for extra training to learn the science learn the math. Um, and the first lecture we ever had was from my college roommate, who happened to be a PhD in biochemistry. It was like, who knows a nerd? Exactly. It was literally that simple. Yeah. Who knows? And I was you know, called up, hey, Janie, could you come and do, you know, can you do a lecture on DNA? And the first lecture was as simple as like, there are cells in your body. And, you know, we really went from there to try to build the expertise we needed to defend the cases. Right. And of course, the implications of this are huge and they have to do with real people's lives. So what was it like to go into the first trial where 
you were using this. It was, and yeah. How confident did you feel? It was tricky. I felt confident at that point, to be honest. I felt we were ahead of the game. You know, the lawyers who had really given over so much time, we had actually learned it. We had learned the science. We had learned the stats, whereas the prosecutors could still rely on their experts. And so they hadn't really all of them learned it or internalized it. They were still just counting on their expert to kind of get them through. So their expert would give them, like, these are the questions you should ask me. And then the prosecutor would sort of mechanically ask the question. They hadn't yet realized, I'm going to need to really deeply understand this also. I will say, you know, that divide then between how do you talk to a jury? Because ultimately, that's our audience is this jury. And how can you make sure that these very sophisticated concepts can be internalized in a productive way to the jury that that posed a real challenge? Can you articulate that prosecutor defender divide a little bit more? It feels like you're saying the burden is on more on the defense to have their science together. I think so. I mean, there are now increasingly prosecutors who have also become interested. So I don't want to suggest no prosecutor knows the technology, but the prosecutors work very closely with the lab personnel who do the testifying. Sometimes they're literally within the police department, within the law enforcement arm. And so the dynamic was often an overworked prosecutor who has a lot of witnesses to be wrangling on a case simply calls up the lab analyst who's going to testify and says, you know, are you ready? It's happening Monday. Can you send me the questions I should be asking you? You know, maybe does a couple corrections, but doesn't have to really deeply understand the technology. But I think quickly it became clear that if the other side knows what it's doing and the prosecutor on rebuttal, the best they can say is like, anything you want to add to that? I think there was an advantage early on because many prosecutors weren't up to speed, even if the defense lawyer was. And that feels sort of like an upending of the whole where the burden should be, right? The burden should be on the prosecution to, you know, innocent until proven guilty. And as you said, this manifests itself inside of a courtroom as uh, rhetoric, Mm -hmm. right? And making an an argument using statistical evidence and forensic evidence and so forth. So what were the challenges and what are the challenges in terms of making a rhetorical argument to a jury? There's tremendous challenges. I mean, the things that juries find persuasive to statisticians may not be persuasive. So even from an ethical standpoint, a lawyer could present a challenge of, you know, how should I present this information ethically? If I think that there is something that's true that I don't think a jury is going to like, but is maybe statistically founded, how far can I push that argument? Um, Because a jury is going to go along with it, even if sort of mathematically there's no there there. Uh, Conversely, you might have a really good argument on the statistics, something that's very complicated and sophisticated, but you just feel like the jury is never going to be able to get this in a cross-examination format. It's just not something that's that readily intelligible. And so trying to balance how strategically you choose your arguments, how you present them, that was incredibly difficult. So even something as simple in DNA, the match statistics are commonly reported as a random match probability. What's the chance that if you picked a person at random, they would match this DNA sample? And the idea is the you know, the defendant matches. And so if the defendant matches, if we say what's the sort of likelihood that we just pick someone at random, they would match, you get a sense of how probative the evidence can be. But jurors don't hear that. Jurors hear you know, what's the chance this guy's guilty? What's the chance that this is his DNA? What's, they don't hear the precise statistic. They hear a kind of general statistic about guilt or innocence. That word, match is very fraught, I learned from your book. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, If you had to define it right now, what would you say is a DNA match? 
I don't think you can say. That's, I think that's part of what the book tries to do. So I think people do think of a match as like a pregnancy test. You either are or you're not. There's no such thing as like a little bit of a match or a partial kind of match. Um, but in fact, as, as the book tries to explain, matching in DNA is a much more complex set of judgments because in the crime scene context, you're not dealing with these pristine samples that you get in a clinical context. No one robs a house and then lays out their DNA exactly. as a full strand on the countertop. <laughs> exactly. You don't take your gloves and put them on and leave your buccal swab or what have you at the scene. So you're getting um, DNA that could be left there at any point in time. It could be in low quantities, which makes it harder to get results. It could have quality issues because of light, heat, things that we know degrade DNA. Even the dye in your denim genes um, can inhibit DNA. And so there are all sorts of things that make DNA testing difficult and challenging in the forensic context. And so when an analyst is looking at results, they have to usually exercise quite a bit of judgment in determining what's there. Once you know what's there, then you have to see what the defendant has. And that's kind of the best answer to what's the match. It's, you know, the correspondence between those two things. But the the next question that most people don't think to ask is, well, what's the significance of any correspondence? Because if I just looked at one place on the genomic strand, we're going to match you and me. In fact, me and a grain of rice are going to match because a huge proportion of our genetic material is similar person to person and even person to animal, person to object. And so the the question of the significance of the match has to turn on these deeper statistical questions that we know from foundational studies show us, you know, what is the dissimilarity between people and at what frequency do we observe those dissimilarities? So you pointed out that there's all these problems in how you gather the DNA to begin with. Let's just say you have DNA and you know, okay, we're confident that this is related to this case. Now we're going to go look for a match or try and find a match with an actual person. Uh, You have all these great examples of, of, of how that has not played out in, a, in an ideal manner. Is there one that you want to highlight? Is there a particular case do you feel like shows a lot of the ways that this is fraught? One of them was a case from California of a man named John Puckett. And the case involved a stale or an old rape that had not been solved. And the DNA, when the technology came around, they thought, well, maybe we could close that old, you know, it was like a Christmas Day murder um, by testing the DNA. Unfortunately, it was an old sample. It was a degraded sample. So they had very little of it. And but they, they had taken DNA when this rape happened a long time ago. But the technology to do this database search didn't exist. Exactly. So the DNA was sitting in a, in a warehouse. Somewhere. Exactly. I mean, many of these unsolved crimes, the evidence is still sitting in a police you know, crime locker somewhere. So as we've seen from newspapers, what they're doing is pulling those out and saying, oh, we can get that bloody shirt and now test it for DNA. So at any rate, so they took this old evidence, they tested it, but because it was old and degraded, they were only able to get a partial profile. Um, And when they took that partial profile, they ran it at a database in California, which has a a large uh, database of known people, and found a match to a man named John Puckett. Now, there wasn't much by way of other evidence in the case. So this DNA match really becomes the critical evidence. His his match, his DNA was in this database. Exactly. And the probability of a random match, given the profile of the DNA, was about one in a million or 1.1 million. And the question then becomes, well, you know, what does that mean by way of evidence? How can we take that as a sign that Puckett is or is not the perpetrator? So they took the DNA from this this cold case and said, okay, what in this database matches that that particular 
What's the right term? Uh, so it's it's to get technical, it's the low size. Let me maybe I'll give a little primer yeah, and that'll yeah, be helpful. Sure. So the standard DNA profile in use today, which is a nationally approved standard set by the FBI, looks at thirteen different places on the genome. At each place, there's two pieces of information: one from mom and one from dad. So ultimately, it's twenty six different pieces of information. And if we said there's a sort of classic profile match, what we'd be saying is at those thirteen places, the crime scene evidence has the same information that you observe in the suspect or in the defendant. So 26 for 26, essentially. Um, Often when you're doing crime scene testing, you're not getting all 26. Some are falling out. Some are hard to interpret. So it's sort of ambiguous what's there. And in this case, they only had uh, nine, I believe, of the loci. And so you have an incomplete picture of the profile. Once you start to trim down the number of places that are similar, you lose the power to say this is the person because there's just coincidental matches that happen all the time. Siblings will match coincidentally because obviously the genetic connection. But even strangers will have uh, a lot of these um, this information in common just by coincidence. So here... The statistic came back as about a one in a million random match probability. And to the kind of untrained ear, you might think, that sounds really powerful. That sounds like proof. But then you have to ask, well, what's the population we're looking in? And that becomes then incredibly important. And there are a lot of different ways to answer that question. You could say, we're looking in the whole population of the world, in which case we'd expect a lot of people with a random match probability of one in a million to, to meet that uh, requirement, but that that doesn't seem quite right because this happened in California. Maybe we should just be asking, well, what about California? Or maybe we should be asking about what about the Bay Area because this happened in the Bay Area. So we can kind of keep drilling down. We could say, well, what about the probability of a random match among men? Because we know that the perpetrator was a man, and so what we really care about is the random probability of a match to a man. Um, so there's lots of different ways of measuring the statistic and the significance of the statistic. Uh, the defense had sought to present information that it was about one in three. Meaning when you start to add all these other factors, uh, a man who lived in California, maybe even around the time of the killing, maybe in that particular area, I don't know if you can get that geographically uh-huh. drilled down, then all of a sudden you should go from one in a million to one in three? Exactly. I mean, the way the defense wasn't, the defense didn't even get into that level of specificity. The defense was following an approach that says, we should look at the size of the database searched and discount the probability by the volume of places, people we've looked at. So if you think of it this way, you could think of sort of an, an unusual name like Armand and say, well, what's the random match probability that if I open a phone book and I just put my finger on, I'm going to hit an Armand? Uh, that might be changing whether you're looking in the A's versus anywhere in the phone book, whether you're looking in a phone book in a he- heavily French region of Vermont versus in Texas. You know, there's lots of different ways of conceptualizing the probability of a random match when you do that kind of search. And so here the defense was saying, at a minimum, we should be thinking about how big our pool was that we're looking in this database to get a sense of kind of the probability of finding a hit by accident. And what happened in the Puckett case? So in that case, they fought extensively about what the appropriate number was. Um, During this fight, an interesting thing happened, which is that an Arizona analyst who was just sort of doing run-of-the-mill work in her lab noticed that there was a high... A number of pairwise matches in the database. What, is a, pa- what do you mean pairwise matches? So a pairwise match is essentially two people having the same genetic information at a certain number of loci. And here she was noticing, for instance, at nine loci, 
there were 100-something matches in, uh, I think it was a 60,000-person database. So there's, there was a, high, high, a much higher rate of pairwise matches than I think in the popular conception people expected. People thought cases were routinely going to conviction on nine, nine locus matches, nine out of 13. And here comes the analyst who says, actually, we have a lot of people in our, just our little database alone that have the same information at nine loci, and they're not related, including 10 lo- more loci. So it started to become a kind of murmur in the defense community. What's going on? I thought this was something that was really unexpected and rare. And now we're hearing that there are many people who share this information in common, even if you just look in this little database. There was a sense that some of our um, data that we were using to make these other match probabilities were unreliable. And there was a a request by members of the defense community. There was a letter, which I myself signed to Science Magazine, asking the FBI to make some of this available to researchers so that we could learn about why this discrepancy existed. And there was a consistent stonewalling on the part of the FBI. They threatened to shut states off from the database who themselves wanted to comply. Um, And so there was, I think, a a fear that these incredibly important statistics were being sheltered from public scrutiny, and yet there were indicia they might be problematic in some way. And this sort of started happening and percolating all around the country. It did. And then I remember this sort of series of stories being like, oh, wow, and then same thing happened in this database, same thing happened in this database, and it just became this chorus of almost like... What have we been doing? Yeah. Have we been getting this wrong all along? And we have a little of a finale in some ways because uh, just this past year, the FBI admitted that there were errors in the tables that are used to calculate these frequencies. And the errors were exactly the kind of errors that this Arizona information pointed toward. In fact, a mathematician had taken the Arizona information and tried to reverse engineer the tables, if you will, to say, given what we know about what actually is happening in Arizona... What does this mean for whether our tables are correct, our frequency tables are correct, and had determined they seem to be incorrect? There's a very high likelihood they're wrong. They've had to reopen now thousands of cases to go back and recompute the match statistics because they are dramatically changing. I read a newspaper report of one that went from like one in a billion to one in a hundred uh, match probability when you recalculate. And this using was someone right who had been convicted on that one in a billion chance that this person is a match. Exactly, and these are this was data that was being used in criminal cases regularly. So give us some perspective about how how big of a problem this is. Well, I think if I had to nail the exact nature of the problem, I think it would be that there's um, too much secrecy, too little transparency, too little accountability when it comes to these incredibly important statistics that are, and how they're used in criminal cases. So as I said, the FBI kind of circled the wagons on that issue. They've continued to do that um, when other questions have arisen. And then I'll say there's a kind of next generation problem, which we could talk about, uh, related to probabilistic software. So now we're taking this kind of original issue or we're putting it on steroids with this software. So when a sample, a crime scene sample, is so complex that to do by hand the kind of calculations you'd want to do to get a picture of the sample would be impossible. But we know we can use sophisticated computer modeling to do just that. We can put in some of the data and then allow the computer essentially to run a bunch of models and come up with what we could look to as a reliability statistic or a match probability statistic. The software 
that does that has to take account of a lot of important variables uh, in terms of the quality of the sample results, assumptions about how many people may have contributed to the sample, things that are inputs, if you will, that dramatically change the output. And yet, there are versions of this software that are totally opaque. They are not open. There's no open source code. They are not um, presented at academic or other environments where people can say, well, wait, you know, you said you're making this choice, but that's not what your code is doing, or you've misunderstood this concept, you need to change it. They're entirely closely held by for-profit entities that sell them to the states to then implement in their systems without ever opening up for further scrutiny what this code's doing, what assumptions it's making, and the like. So I think that's a real problem. That's a question that we should be asking more about. But does this happen in any other kind of evidence that gets introduced in a courtroom? I mean, you can't have like a for-profit like witness testimony company come in and say, oh, we did an interview with these people and, you know, this guy confessed or this person said they saw someone in a blue coat. Why is that legal? Well, that's a good question. I don't think it should be. I think there is a due process right, a confrontation right. There are statutes that give defendants the right to challenge evidence that I think also could be the basis for a defense entitlement to open this code. But essentially, courts have been reluctant to do so. You mentioned how the FBI circled the wagons at first. I know you said that maybe in the last year there's been they've reopened some cases, but did they circle the wagons for the reasons I would imagine the FBI would circle the wagons, which is just we don't want to open a window towards admitting that a bunch of people who got convicted were wrongfully convicted? It's hard to read their minds. That certainly seems like a very logical explanation. I will say the way the national database is presently structured, they don't keep the data at the national level. They are essentially a pointer system. So the data is kept at the state level, and it's only the kind of Um, matching that happens at the national level. So there are some things that you would want to know about the database that they don't have a very easy way of answering. They could answer it, but it's not a simple push of the button. But something like, what are your match reports? What do your matches look like? They've got that answer, and they won't hand it over. And whether it's because they don't want you know, people asking a lot of questions, whether they're worried about uh, exposing, you know, problems with convictions that have currently, that are currently existing, it's hard to say. People whose DNA is in these databases, are they only people who've, you know, committed crimes or entered yeah. the system elsewhere, or are people's DNA from other things entering Well, now these you're databases? asking a complicated question, yes. because the official, so the national database requires that the DNA be taken in compliance with state law, and that only certain DNA from crime seems to be submitted. It has to have a close connection to the crime. So let's say there's a crime that occurs outside of a nightclub. If police collect all of the cigarette butts, but there's no evidence that any one cigarette butt was left by the perpetrator, they can't just upload the DNA results from all those cigarette butts, because even though it's vaguely connected to the crime, it doesn't connect to the perpetrator necessarily. But there's all sorts of other DNA databases, including what I call rogue databases, databases kept by municipalities, counties that can include DNA they've collected in other ways. Say there's a sexual assault that occurs and the a victim has a boyfriend and the victim you know, once the boyfriend gives a sample so as to exclude the possibility of the boyfriend being mistaken as the perpetrator, um, that's called an elimination sample. That sample might go into one of these rogue databases. The victim sample might go into a rogue database. Or say there's a suspect and police go and say, hey, we, we're suspecting you as offense. We give a voluntary sample. That voluntary sample can go into these rogue databases. So there's, and I should add that technology now exists that um, some of them are being linked to one another. So now these rogue databases are forming a kind of shadow, you know, system.
I've talked about criminal justice a number of times on this show, and one of the things that comes up over and over is just that all of the the biases that are normally baked into the criminal justice system, especially you know around race and class, uh, often find their way baked into kind of new attempts to use data or more dispassionate approaches. So I wonder if you see those problems as exacerbated in any way, especially along those lines, race and class. Absolutely. I think that the um, system in in the struggles it has with race and class issues play out entirely in the DNA context. So to give some examples, one is, you know, we know that genetic ancestry influences the probability of having certain traits. So we can it's not people sometimes think race is genetic like you can tell race as a function of genes you can't tell that but what you can tell is ancestry people who have an ancestral history they are from the european continent versus the african continent they're more likely to have certain genetic traits than others and so the language in which this is put in courts can really leave a misimpression that race is genetic that it's somehow hardwired into our genes there's also a kind of crudeness with which it's done so if you say for instance united states black Well, black can mean a lot of things in the United States. It can mean everything from our biracial president, who was born of a white woman and an African man, all the way to a recent immigrant from Africa, uh, a Caribbean African. There's There's lots of different ways of having brown and black skin in our society. And yet, as a social category, we just have this one label, black. And as DNA statistics, we tend to use just this one label. Um, another example I'll just give, uh, two, two more examples about how this can play out is, one in our DNA collection policies. You know, we mandate that we take DNA from convicted persons and some states from arrested persons. And we know that our criminal justice system does not arrest and convict people with total equity, that there are disparities between the conduct that's committed, say, smoking marijuana, and the arrests that occur in terms of who's arrested for for marijuana possession or convicted for marijuana possession. Whites and blacks fairly equally with maybe whites leading the way smoke marijuana, but blacks overwhelmingly are arrested for marijuana possession and convicted for marijuana possession. So if you have a data bus policy that says all convicted people must give their DNA, you're only capturing... Uh, a subset based on racial terms of those And so that when people. you do look for a match in a database, you're actually just looking for a match of people who have gotten caught up in a criminal justice system that has all these biases we were just discussing. Exactly right. And, and another way I think this plays out is there's a method of searching called familial searching, where you're looking in the database not for an exact match. You didn't, you didn't find an exact match, but you're looking instead for someone who might be related to your perpetrator. As you can see, it completely disproportionately affects one population, the population in the database. And if we know our database is racially skewed, reflects the racial skew of our criminal justice system, then the relatives who are subject to this kind of added scrutiny are now also going to be from certain subsets of our population. So in reading your book and now in talking to you, uh, you know, I have become sufficiently disheartened and a little little (laughs) outraged at the state of, of this. But I think Particularly so because there's this promise that DNA would be this dispassionate, scientific, sort of silver bullet thing that would take all these 
the biases and so forth that we were talking about out of the equation. So, you know, I do think, uh, to keep everyone from becoming too morose, there is a lot to be grateful for when it comes to DNA testing. It can be an incredibly powerful technology that that was a game changer in forensic identification, will continue to be. I think the book is meant really just to say, let's be careful and mindful of how we use it. Let's not forget it's in this system that you describe. Um, So, you know, I will say, one, the use of DNA to exonerate is much less fraught and complicated than the use to inculpate. Because if you're exonerating, you don't have to get into these very complicated questions of um, what is the significance of a match. All you have to say is it's not a match. And that's a lot easier. When I hear mostly about DNA testing, I hear about it in the sort of Innocence Project uh, context of, wow, we were able to get someone who was wrongly convicted off. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you're telling kind of the opposite side. Well, it's certainly the case that in the exoneration context, Uh, I think DNA raises far fewer issues because you can say with certainty, even if we have questions about certain aspects of the profile, if it's an incomplete profile, you can still exonerate someone on an incomplete profile because all you have to show is they don't match. It's kind of like having, you know, a license plate with some digits missing. If you've got the digits missing, then you may have several candidates for who could have been the license plate. You know, anyone who partially matches might be your perpetrator. But you can immediately rule out with full confidence anyone who's got a totally different set of digits. But I do think it's different, and we must know and be aware of its difference in the inculpation context when we're trying to show this was our source and mindful of how it can be misused in the system at large. But I am trying to get a sense of how far you you go in this. Uh Do you think every case that has introduced DNA evidence needs to be reassessed? No. No, definitely not. I mean, it turns a lot on the quality of the crime scene sample, um, the degree to which subjective judgments were required in the interpretation. The existence of other evidence is an important factor. If you have an an overwhelming amount of other evidence, then even a very low probative DNA result can be meaningful. You know, it it can help the case and it's not decisive in the case. If you have no other evidence and you're fishing around in a database as in the book I talk in several stories you know looking for someone who might match one of several interpretations of the DNA that's a problem you know how often does that happen I don't think we know because we don't have the kind of quality controls that that I would like to see in this field but there are a, a significant number of cases that are built just purely on database match DNA evidence. Absolutely. There are, you know, especially some of the cold cases when you get a cold hit match and because of the passage of time or just the absence of other evidence, you're not really able to build up. As in Puckett's case, there's not really much more to build on. But if you think about DNA evidence as compared to the other kinds of evidence that could be introduced, I mean, we know (laughs) how unreliable eyewitness evidence is. We know that uh, confessions can be coerced. Is it still the most reliable in your mind? It's, it's impossible to answer in the abstract. It's certainly just the same way we can't, you know, different witnesses have strengths or weaknesses. If you have a witness who circumstantially had a long opportunity to observe, who wasn't subject to a um, suggestive procedure, et cetera, you might have a great deal of confidence in that witness, notwithstanding what we know about witnesses in other environments. Similarly with DNA. DNA is no different. If you have a, you know, a sample from an intimate bodily swab, like in a rape case, if you have a large quantity of sample... If you're able to recover a good 
robust profile that doesn't require a lot of subjective interpretation, that's great evidence. that We can rely on and count on that. But just because that, that form of DNA exists doesn't mean every form of DNA exists like that. There's also the weak version. There's also the witness who didn't really have a chance to observe or has a horrible recall or can be highly suggestible. And so, too, you could have you know DNA that is in a low quantity and is highly subjective in its interpretation and was put in a database that could be then a fortuitous match instead of actually indicative of, of uh, a true source. And so it's really just to understand that DNA is as complicated. Unfortunately, it's not going to be our shining you know, savior. It's actually, it's actually complicated in just the way other forms of evidence are. So we started with your former life as a lawyer. Yeah. And let's, let's, go, let's end there, which is I'm curious if you have advice for lawyers who more and more this kind of evidence is going to be part of their day-to-day work. What kind of literacy is needed? What kind of mindset is needed in order to use these tools responsibly? Well, obviously, they should buy my book. Read the book three times. (laughs) Um, And I will say, a lot of the reason I wrote the book was because for lawyers, they needed some kind of one-stop shop, somewhere they could get the science, the stats, the social policy all in one place. And so... Um, I think that's the major piece of advice. It's naive to suggest that every lawyer will either be capable or have the time to become an expert in every dimension of forensic DNA. But they must have a basic competence so that they can identify when they need help. They must be able to screen their own case and say, okay, I'm, I'm not sure what this is exactly, but I recognize this particular thing could be a problem. So having just a, a sort of 36,000-foot capacity to identify where there could be issues and and where they need to seek help is really, I think, a basic level of competence every lawyer should strive for. Aaron Murphy is the author of Inside the Cell, the Dark Side of Forensic DNA, and you're a law professor at NYU. Your Twitter handle is at Aaron Murphy's Law. Thank you so much for coming coming on to What's the Point? Thanks for a great discussion. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel. You can find video of this conversation and lots more on our website, 538.com slash podcasts or on 538's Facebook page. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. Tony Chow helped with video. My name is Jody Avergan. You can email me at podcasts at 538.com. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. Subscribe to the Song Exploder if you're one of the few people in the world who haven't already. And you can find a link to download the theme song to this podcast that he wrote on our website. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. Thanks for listening. Next week, our year-end first-ever Data Awards. See you soon. What's the Point listeners? I'm Chadwick Matlin. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Neil Payne. And together we make up the crew of Hot Takedown, 538 Sports Podcast. Kate, how would you describe the show if you had to do it in like five seconds? It's freaking awesome. Okay, Neil? We take down hot takes. Look at that. That's sort of the title. 
Good point. <laughs> so if you want to hear us talk about the week in sports news and what people are talking about in an uninformed way and ha- hear about the data and the stats and the analytics that take them down, subscribe in the iTunes store. Search for Hot Takedown to find us. We'll talk to you then. Do it. <laughs>